Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 67, Firstborn of Creation. Today I moderate a debate between Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries and Patrick Novice on the topic of the deity of Christ from five specific texts or families of texts. Uh, and you know, because that debate's long and, and probably will get a wide audience given that uh, it's James White, I'm going to keep my monologue very short and just make a couple of very brief announcements. One is I've uh, been very diligently preparing for my upcoming debate and uh, I've been um, interacting with several people from both sides of the debate who've told me that my case is pretty strong. Uh, and so I am really itching, chomping at the bit to get uh, to get into it. If, if you would like to review my opening uh, and ask me any questions or challenge me or help me practice cross-examination or anything like that, feel free to email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com. And as long as you're willing not to share my opening argument with my opponent or anybody else for that matter, I'd be happy to interact with you. Um, I value your input, and you know, if it turns out that I'm clearly wrong before the debate even begins, I might just have to back out. Um, so please do email me if you want to see uh, my case and inter- interact with me on it. Otherwise, stay tuned. That'll uh, that debate is scheduled for December 20th, and I'm really looking forward to it. The other th- announcement that I want to make is that I've uh, managed to secure a interview with Mike Lacona uh, for not next week, uh, that is the um, the last week of November, but the following week. Originally it was planned for Monday the 5th, I believe was the day, um, the morning thereof, but unfortunately his wife got scheduled for a medical appointment and so we've had to reschedule, but still I think that it'll be that week. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus as well as some of the controversy that's been going on between uh, him and Norm Geisler. Uh, concerning his um, position on the inerrancy of the scriptures. So I hope you'll be looking forward to that, and I've decided to add a new promo to my uh, promo rotation. I've been meaning to do this for a while, actually, but in light of the guests that I have on my show today, I figured this would be a good opportunity to play a promo for uh, James White's The Dividing Line. Webcasting around the world from the desert metropolis of Phoenix, Arizona, this is The Dividing Line. The Apostle Peter commanded Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to give that answer with gentleness and reverence. Our host is Dr. James White, director of Alpha Omega Ministries and an elder at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. This is a live program, and we invite your participation. If you'd like to talk with Dr. White, call now at 602-973-4602. Or toll-free across the United States, it's 1-877-753-3341. And now with today's topic, here is James White. You can listen to The Dividing Line featuring Dr. James White most Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific uh, Daylight Savings Time and most Thursday afternoons at 4 o'clock p.m. in that same time zone. Um, You can listen online or you can also download the podcast at AOMIN, that's Alpha and Omega Ministries, AOMIN.org. And as you could probably tell, all I did was record the opening to one of his recent episodes and maybe that will um, convince James to uh, provide me with a promo for his show. I don't know. I'll leave that up to him. But 
in any case, I highly recommend his show. Uh, I really respect and appreciate James White, even if he and I disagree in a couple of areas. Uh, the topic of today's debate is not one of those areas where I disagree with James White. But um, nevertheless, I would encourage you that you check it out. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into today's debate between Dr. James White and Patrick Novice on the Deity of Christ. As words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Friday, November 25th, 2011, and hopefully you had a great Thanksgiving. But whenever it is that you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning into this, the fourth The Apologetics Podcast debate, this time dealing with what the Bible says is the nature and identity of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to five key texts and families of texts. Dr. James White is director of Alpha and Omega Ministries and has participated in a great number of public moderated debates, including several on the deity of Christ and on the Trinity. He's author of The Forgotten Trinity, published in 1998 by Bethany House, and has graciously taken the time out of his very busy schedule to be with us today. James, thank you so much for participating today. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Patrick Novice lives in Valencia, California with his wife and two children. He participates in home-based Christian fellowships in the Southern California area and has taught history for the L.A. Unified School District for the past four years. In 2011, he published a revised edition of his book on the Trinity called Divine Truth or Human Tradition, a Reconsideration of the Orthodox Doctrine of the Trinity in Light of the Hebrew and Christian Scriptures. Thank you as well, Patrick, for being here today. Hey, Chris, thank you for having me. The pro proposition of today's debate is this. The deity of Christ is taught in the following texts or families of texts. John 12, 41, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6, Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Dr. White affirms the proposition and Patrick denies it. Dr. White and Patrick have agreed to a format consisting of a 10-minute opening statement each, followed by 28 minutes of interaction per each of the five texts and subjects, including seven-minute opening statements, three-minute rebuttals, three minutes of uh, cross-examination each, and one-minute closing arguments. So with all that out of the way, I'll open very briefly in prayer, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for my guests' willingness to participate in the debate today. This is an all-important topic, the nature and identity of your Son, Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would humble each of our hearts, uh, not only in terms of our behavior toward one another, but in, in terms of our taking your word seriously and allowing the truth that's contained therein to sink into our hearts. Lord, we pray you would reveal that truth to us um, and that you would... Uh, that you would help us to be like the noble Bereans who tested everything that they were told in light of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we agreed to the negative um, of the proposition opening first. So, Patrick, if you're ready to begin, I'll start your 10-minute timer now. Okay. Uh, first, let me say uh, good evening to everyone out there listening to this podcast. I'd also like to thank uh, Chris Date for um, hosting the program and for putting the whole thing together. And I'd also like to thank uh, Dr. James White, my opponent in this debate, for his willingness to engage me. Um, since I'm going to be taking the negative side um, <clears throat> in this debate, I wanted to make sure I make absolutely clear uh, what my position is in this debate. Um, I am a Christian. Um, the only difference uh, between, <clears throat> or one of the major differences between myself and 
perhaps the majority of people who profess to follow the Christian faith, is that I do not align myself with any particular branch of Christianity or any uh, type of denomination. I don't consider myself a Catholic, nor do I consider myself a Protestant, but simply um, a, a Christian. And what I mean by that is that <clears throat> that I profess to to believe and to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, and um, I hold exclusively to the teachings that are articulated in the Bible itself, and um, I don't go beyond those things. Um, your average Christian, Protestant, Catholic holds to certain creeds that developed um, several centuries after the New Testament was written. And um, I don't really have a problem with the concept of a creed, per se, which is basically or essentially a formal statement of faith. But as a Christian, what I what I try to stick to are the creeds that are specifically presented in the Bible, the formal statements of faith that you find in the scriptures. And there are, in fact, uh, quite a number that I, that I could point to, but... Um, I'd like to start off uh, <clears throat> referring to one particular text that is directly related to the subject that we're going to be debating tonight, um, because the whole debate really revolves around the identity uh, and the nature of Jesus of Nazareth. So this question uh, about Jesus' identity was um, explicitly uh, discussed in the Bible, but one specific text that I'd like to talk about. In uh, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus himself poses that very question to his disciples. It's a famous text. He says, uh, who, are, who are men saying that the Son of Man is to his disciples? And they respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And in response, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And in turn, Jesus responds with his approval. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So that particular text really does capture the, the position that I'm going to take in this debate and the position that I take as a believer in Christ. And it's, it's an expression that satisfactorily um, explains what I believe. And... Um, <clears throat> Unlike James White, I deny that Jesus is himself God, as in the almighty God, or as uh, many Trinitarians would say, as the second person of the Godhead. So I do believe that the term God can and does apply to Jesus in several texts. One I think we'll be talking about, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, but I do not believe that Jesus is literally the most high or almighty God. And uh, James White, uh, in his most recent debate with Roger Perkins, um, he made a point about normative human language. In other words, the, just a normal common sense understanding of language um, would, in, uh, in the debate that he had with Roger Perkins, Dr. White was trying to make a point that, well, since Jesus you know, has a relation with the Father, he prays to the Father, they, they interact with one another, according to a, the normative use of human language, that would in anybody's you know, understanding, um, clearly uh, communicate the idea that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. So, And I, I absolutely agree with James White on that point. Um, but at the same time, uh, let's just take, a, take an expression like Jesus is the Son of God. He's God's Son. God is his Father. Well, 
according to, again, what James White would call you know, the normative uh, use of human language, um, that would not lead anybody to believe that Jesus is himself God, but rather the Son of God. Um, <clears throat> James White, he quotes John Calvin in his book on the Trinity, um, and what Calvin says really also captures uh, the heart of, of my own approach to the biblical faith. In the Forgotten Trinity, page 9, he says, quoting Calvin, Let us use great caution that neither our thoughts nor our speech go beyond the limits which the word of God itself extends. And James White himself says in, on page 32 of the Forgotten Trinity, We dare not go beyond the boundaries God himself has set in his word. And that's, that's a point that I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with. Um, and that, again, that really strikes at the heart of my position. Um, but James White goes on in his book, and I have the, the page numbers, I won't read them all, but he identifies Jesus, as, as a mainstream Orthodox Christianity does, as, quote, the God-man, one person with two natures, God the Son, <clears throat> God in human flesh, consubstantial, which means one in being or essence with the Father, the eternal Son of God. Uh, there never was a time when the Son was not eternally begotten of the Father, eternally equal with the Father, so on and so forth. Now, the reason I, I mention those theological categories and terms is to, to make the point that, first of all, none of those terms um, actually appear in the Bible. They are literally foreign to, to the Bible in terms of the language that, that the Bible uses. So not only um, are these words unbiblical, um, but none of the concepts that, that are represented by these terms are ever clearly or expressly taught in the Bible, but they're rather products of theological thinking and uh, post-biblical uh, language and categories. And not only that, but the point that I would make is that none of these, these terms and none of this theological language is necessary for a Christian to use or to even think in those terms and the reason is because the Bible itself already uses satisfactory terms to express uh, what we should believe about God and what we should believe about Jesus. And the last point I'd like to make is that when the Bible identifies Jesus as the Christ, as is well known, that word literally means the anointed one. Okay? And the, the notion in the Bible or the idea when, when the Bible identifies Jesus as the Christ, as Peter himself did in Matthew 16, the, the idea is that he is one who's been anointed by God. And again, according to a normal, normative use of hi- human language, um, if you've been anointed by God, well, you're not God, but rather one who has been anointed by God. Now, there's a multitude of texts that I could point to that plainly present Jesus and God as two distinct figures. Okay, I mean... The Bible talks about how God sent Jesus, God raised Jesus from the dead, so on and so forth. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, anybody who's new to this debate or new to studying the Bible might look at a text like that and think, well, how could anybody uh, maintain the idea that Jesus is himself God, you know, when the Bible so plainly and so consistently distinguishes him from God. Well, this is where we get an insight into how Trinitarian theology and Trinitarian interpretation uh, functions. Okay, See, I could point to a text where Jesus is distinguished from God, but 
way that Trinitarians are interpreting those texts is that whenever Jesus is portrayed as a distinct figure from God, they would basically say, well, God really is a reference in this case to the Father. Okay, And so then the, the point is that in the minds of Trinitarians, the distinction between God and Jesus becomes acceptable to them because the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father in Trinitarian theology, although both are equally God. Now, the point that I would emphasize when it comes to the way Trinitarians are interpreting those uh, texts is that they're, they're ultimately defining the word God in a way that the Bible doesn't. In other words, when they say God equals the Father, that's something that I would most definitely agree with. But according to the Bible, the Father is the one God. He is the only true God, the one God. But according to Trinitarians, the Father really means the first person of the Trinity, so that we have in those texts where Jesus is distinguished from God, the idea in the minds of Trinitarians, well, this is really a personal distinction between the Father and the Son, and it doesn't really uh, mean a distinction between Jesus and God in the way that one would normally think. So that's a point that needs to be emphasized, I believe, in order for us to make sense of a lot of the issues that we're going to discuss, especially when it comes to texts that show that Jesus that's time, and God are distinct figures. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, James, your 10-minute opening. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I would like to start off by just pointing out, uh, and of course thanking everybody for making this uh, a possibility, but pointing out that what we need to do this evening is we need to listen to all of what the Word of God has to say. And I truly believe that Unitarianism is a rationalistic mechanism of reading out of the scriptures the depth of the meaning that the Christian church has seen in those scriptures ever since they were given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. What I mean by that is that the Bible reveals certain things to us. It reveals an absolute form of monotheism. Uh, I'm not sure that we have an absolute form of monotheism being presented this evening in opposition to the doctrine of the Trinity. We'll need to get into that. Uh, but uh, the idea that there is a, a true God who is to be worshipped in a way that none of the rest of creation is to be worshipped. And so this one true God has manifested himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, the scriptures reveal to us three persons. They distinguish between those persons. Uh, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And yet each of these persons are described in scriptures in a way that would be inappropriate for any mere creature or non-personal force, active force, or whatever else you might describe uh, especially in regards to Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is the worship that is given to Jesus Christ, the descriptions of Jesus Christ, the language used of Jesus Christ, is utterly inappropriate, if we are monotheists, uh, for a mere creature. And so when we look at Scripture, when we look at Philippians chapter 2, we have one who is eternally existent. We have one who gives consideration to the the equality he has with God the Father as something not to be held on to at all costs, but instead as the ultimate act of humility uh, lays that aside in service to others. We have this one then being exalted with the very language used in the Old Testament of Yahweh himself, and yet all this is to the glory of God the Father. You have this kind of language that would be just completely inappropriate and, and incomprehensible if Jesus is merely a creature. And really the issue tonight, and I, I hope the, the listeners will listen very carefully to this, the issue tonight, uh, there's two sides. There's uh, While I'm taking the positive, uh, you need to understand what the negative is. And that is if Jesus Christ is a created being, 
then he exists on the other side of the creator, the creator creation distinction. And that is an infinite chasm. If he is a created being, if he came into existence at a point in time, even if he is the most exalted of all creatures, he is still a created being. Now, I honestly am not 100% certain where Mr. Nava stands at this point. I could not tell from his the entirety of a 600-page book exactly where he stands. And he just told us that, well, the, the Bible's sufficient in its own language to answer these questions. Well, uh, if Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean? Has he eternally existed as the Son of God? Has the Father eternally been the Father? Did he become the Father at a point in time in history when he first created the one who is called Jesus? Is he an angelic being? Uh, what, what exactly is the Son of God? What is, what makes him special? Could, could God have created other sons like him? Could there be ten sons of God like him? A, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand. Uh, these are questions that need to be asked. And if he's a creature, we have to confess that God would have the ability, uh, to create literally thousands like him. And so, what is being said is, well, he may be unique, but, but not by his nature. It's just that God only created one of him. And so if, if, if Jesus is, in fact, a creature, something that has been made, um, then the language that is used of him in the Bible is incomprehensible. As we will see in each of these texts, the uh, ascription to him of the title Lord uh, is not just a position given to him in regards to Messiahship, though that is part of his of his tremendous work as prophet, priest, and king. Uh, but even even more than that, he is described with that term kudios in ways that cannot be limited to a mere creature. It's just not possible. The, I, I think we would have to give up the integrity and inspiration of Scripture uh, to hold to a position that would say that Jesus is a creature. He is an exalted creature, yes, but he remains a creature. Uh, I believe that, honestly, that has to be kept in mind. So when we're talking about things like Jesus is the Son of God, we all believe that. Uh, but what that means is very different between us. I look at John chapter 19 and what the Jews said, that we have a law. By that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. They understood that the sonship of Jesus is absolutely unique, just as in John chapter 5, verse 18, in the fact that Jesus was claiming the ability to work on the Sabbath just as his father did. And so while we distinguish between the Father and the Son, as the Scriptures do, and while we see very, very clearly that the normative term for God the Father in the New Testament is theos, the normative term for Jesus is kurios, the very term used in the Old Testament Greek translation for the very name of God. And as we get into 1 Corinthians 8 and others, we'll see where these themes are brought together. And so I honestly believe that this is an issue that requires the the listeners uh, to recognize two very different approaches to Scripture. One I, I've, I would identify as rationalistic in the sense that it reads out of Scripture anything that would require us to uh, take a view of Jesus that would not fit into these nice parameters of a great teacher, a, a great... Uh, uh, whatever you want to read in the Son of God, but refuses to see the collective testimony, and that's going to come up especially in the I Am sayings, the collective testimony of Scripture 
to the majesty of the person of Jesus Christ. And the listener will also have to keep in mind the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man. For example, it was just said that, well, Christ, he's the anointed one. Well, who anointed him? Well, God did. Well, that obviously means they're two different persons. Well, uh, <laughs> Jesus came into human flesh. He, as Philippians chapter 2 said, he made himself of no reputation, a kenosin. He, he emptied himself. Doesn't mean he emptied himself of deity, but, but he made himself subject to the Father. He said, the Father is greater than I am, speaking of going back into the presence of the Father. That's clearly a, a positional issue that is, that is in, in light there. And so, since he did that, uh, since he took that role, then there is clearly going to need to be a distinction observed uh, in regards to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, all those terms uh, that Mr. Novice just pointed out that I use are forced upon us by allowing all of Scripture to speak, rather than saying, well, we just want to, we don't want to answer necessarily those questions. We just want to try to sort of um, uh, stick to biblical language. Well, the gospel went beyond just the area around Israel. And that's why questions had to be asked and answered in the period of time after the giving of the New Testament. Now, is the New Testament sufficient enough to reveal to us the truth of those things? Yes, it is. But if the questions are asked in language that is not used in the Scripture, then we either have to make a choice to not answer those questions at all, or we need to answer those questions while being faithful to the biblical revelation itself. And I would say that all the terminology that was just mentioned is faithful to the biblical testimony because we are recognizing that Jesus is created, is, is, uh, described as the creator, that Jesus is described as eternally existing, that Jesus is, is worshiped, that he's prayed to. All of these things which simply cannot consistently, and there is the key term, consistently be said of any creature, no matter how exalted and no matter how great he may be, uh, that is not an appropriate behavior. When the, when, when the revelation was, was being shown to John and he bowed down before the angel that had showed him, shown him these great and wonderful things, uh, even at that point, the, the angel, no matter how exalted he was, says, don't do that. Worship only God. Well, Jesus, is worshipped in that same book by every created thing in John chapter in, in Revelation chapter five, every created thing, uh, Revelation four and five, Revel- every created thing bows down before He who sits on the throne and the Lamb, and that kind of language is a violation of any meaningful definition of monotheism. I, I don't believe we can come up with a meaningful definition of worship. If the worship that is given to Jesus Christ is turned into some secondary form. And so consistency is going to be the issue all the way through this. Will we allow all of scripture to speak or will we read out of scripture that which is not in conformance to certain presuppositions that we've already embraced? Thank you. Okay, thank you both for your opening statements. We're going to begin by taking a look at John 12:41, and James, you get to open with a seven-minute opening on on this text first. So, if you're ready to begin, I'll start your seven-minute timer. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, John chapter 12, the end of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, certain Greeks uh, come seeking Jesus. Jesus does not reveal himself to them. Uh, and beginning at verse 37, we read, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. 
so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, the issue here is the significance of verse 41. Verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke concerning him. Now, when we look at the texts that are cited immediately before this, we know that they are drawn from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. There is no question in this particular portion of our debate that Isaiah said much about the ministry of the Messiah. There is no question that the ministry of the Messiah was glorious. There is no question that part and parcel of what is being addressed by John here is the judicial hardening of the hearts of the people of Israel who had rejected their Messiah, and that the foremost application of the specific words, both from Isaiah 53 and uh, Isaiah 6, are prophetically about that very hardening and the fact that there would be many amongst Israel who would not believe in Jesus. No question about any of these things. The question is, what does John mean when he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke about him? What does, what is John communicating to us there? Well, here's the, 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 the thing that has to be understood, and this is difficult to explain in audio-only format. This is where uh, a, the use of an overhead uh, uh, digital projection would be much, uh, much easier. When we look at the phrase, these, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, uh, one perspective on this is that, well, this is just a general statement that Isaiah saw the general glory of the general ministry of the Messiah and he spoke generally of the Messiah, taken in a very vague sense. But when John writes verse 41, he says, Isaiah saw his glory. Now, where did Isaiah ever see the glory of Jesus? Well, the first question to ask is, who does Isaiah say he saw the glory of? Well, it's pretty obvious what he's referring to. He had just quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, which begins in Isaiah 6, 1, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lofty and lifted up, and we have to be very careful reading from the Greek Septuagint, which is what John would expect his readers to have access to. The end of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, talks about how he's lifted up, lofty and lifted up, and the whole house was full of his glory. Now, there's a textual variant there. It's taste doxes autu, his glory. So, what did Isaiah see in the Greek Septuagint? He saw the Lord, he saw Yahweh himself seated upon the throne, lofty and lifted up. And what else does he see? The term Idon there is used. is It's in the first person because Isaiah is saying, I saw this. In John, it's in the third person, Iden, because he's now narrating it. But he sees taste doxes out too. Now in that play, that uh, instance it's in the genitive because it's the house was full of his glory but when it's made the direct object of sight in uh, John 12:41 then it's put into the accusative tain doxon altu and he spoke concerning him well where 
did Isaiah do any of these things? Where did Isaiah speak about Yahweh when he saw his glory? And it's pretty obvious. This is in the temple vision. Now, again, that's very specific because, well, we, we want to allow the words to speak for themselves. Where did Isaiah see the glory of Yahweh and speak concerning him, describe him, talk about him? Well, there's only one passage that fulfills that, and that is Isaiah 6. So if we ask Isaiah the question, who did you see? Whose glory did you see? He says, I saw saw Yahweh's. But in the context, there's only one person being spoken of in John chapter 12. The very next verse says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Who's that? That's Jesus. And so John is telling us that the one who was seen by Isaiah on the throne, lofty and lifted up, the object of the worship of the cherubim and the seraphim, there in Isaiah chapter 6, is in fact the one who has been rejected by Israel in the person of Jesus Christ. He's identified, it's one of the texts, we'll, when we get to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll see another very important text where these monotheistic Jews keep identifying their master as Yahweh, without confusing him with the Father, which means they think that the name Yahweh can be applied to, well, more than one person. And so here in John chapter 12, the question we're going to have to, we're going to have to answer is, is there any place else where Isaiah uses in the Greek Septuagint the term Idon, where he describes the direct object as being the Lord and his glory? Is there any place else where that happens that is not, that, that is in fact quoted by John or made relevant by John or anything like that? Or are we accurately handling John and allowing his words to have their own meaning, their na- native meaning? And is that consistent with the entirety of John? I would argue very strongly that it is, given the prologue's strong testimony to the deity of Christ and the conclusion of the gospel at least as far as this subject is concerned in John 20, 28, when Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God, uh, you put all of this together and you have all these themes coming together that, that support one another and substantiate one another. John said, Isaiah saw Jesus sitting upon that throne. That tells us who Jesus really is. Okay, thank you, James. Uh, Patrick, I'll start your seven-minute timer um, for your presentation now. Okay, thank you, James. Uh, I absolutely agree with James White that the key issue, the, the question that we're trying to figure out, uh, involves uh, John 12:41, <clears throat> where the prophet, where John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I also agree that that's a reference to the Messiah. In other words, um, John is saying Isaiah said these things because he saw the Messiah's glory and spoke of him. Okay. Uh, as Dr. White clearly explained, he believes and argues, as other Trinitarians do, that the glory that <clears throat> Isaiah saw is the glory associated with Isaiah's temple vision in Isaiah 6, uh, <clears throat> chapter 6. Okay? And um, in other words, what, J- what James is essentially arguing is that what John means is that Isaiah saw Jesus Christ in his pre-existent or pre-incarnate state as Jehovah God himself, thus um, proving the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> this connection is by no means certain, and uh, 
I'm going to try to explain why. Well, first of all, notice that John quotes, as James pointed out, from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6.10. And again, he says, Isaiah said these things. In other words, the things that were written in Isaiah 53.1 and Isaiah 6.10. So we have another text that um, is relevant to the issue. Now, <clears throat> when you look at Isaiah 52 and 53 in the Septuagint, you will actually see that the Messiah is portrayed in a glorious state. In fact, Isaiah actually uses those particular words in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 in the Septuagint, which, uh, again, explicitly speaks of the glory of the Messiah in a context where the prophet goes on to speak about the Messiah in great detail. And to quote the text, um, it says, My servant, speaking of the Messiah, shall understand and be exalted and glorified exceedingly. And then it says also, and your glory, that is the glory of the Messiah, shall not be honored among the sons of men. So it's it's not true to argue that we, well, it's obvious or it's absolutely necessary to make the connection between the glory connected with Isaiah's temple vision of, um, in Isaiah 6. Because the, gl- the glory of the Messiah is clearly portrayed in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 as well. Now, again, James interprets um, that text. Isaiah said these things because he saw the Messiah's glory to, be, to, to mean that he literally saw a pre-existent being. Okay? This also is simply not necessary. So the reason is, if you go back, for example, to John 8.56, Jesus made a very similar statement in reference to Abraham. And he says, your father, speaking to the Jews, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Okay, so here's an instance in the Gospel of John itself that proves and clearly demonstrates that a figure from the Old Testament could see something in association with the Messiah in in a kind of or what we might call a prophetic sense. In other words, Abraham didn't literally see the Messiah. At least that's not what the text says. It says that he saw his day. Now, Abraham did not live in the day of the Messiah. So um, it's pretty clear and obvious that what he he means essentially is that Abraham saw in the sense that he envisioned. That is, he prophetically saw from afar off the the day of the Messiah. So the point that I'm making is, likewise, it's it's very easy to and very natural to interpret John as meaning that Isaiah saw the glory of the Messiah in a very similar sense. In other words, in a prophetic, visionary um, sense. In other words, it does not have to mean that he literally saw the Messiah as a pre-existent being. In fact, the text doesn't say that Isaiah saw the Messiah, but rather he saw the glory of the Messiah. And not only do we have uh, evidence for that, as I mentioned, in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 in the Septuagint, but the Messiah is depicted as a glorious individual all throughout the writings of Isaiah. So it's very easy to, to, to conclude that Isaiah saw the glory of the Messiah in a prophetic, visionary type of sense. And you also see that in other instances in the Bible, for example, in the uh, John's Revelation, uh, chapter 21, he says, I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. Okay. Now we know for sure that he didn't literally see a new heaven and earth in the sense that it was actually there in front of him. But it's something that's going to occur in the future. But yet John could say that he saw this new heaven and this new earth. And the sense is clearly in, in vision, in a, in a visionary prophetic type of sense. Um, another evidence that supports the, the conclusion that, I'm, that I've reached on that text um, in, op, in contradiction to what Dr. White has argued is that the, the glory of the Messiah, according to the Gospel of John, is something that the Messiah manifested through the signs and the miracles that he performed. And that's exactly what's taking place in John chapter 12. But if you go back to John chapter 2, verse 11, after Jesus turned uh, the water into wine at this uh, wedding, um, it says, I'll read the text, it says, This, turning the water into wine, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, So that's a text that shows the Messiah's glory is manifested specifically through the signs that he performed. Now, notice how similar the language is when you look at um, John chapter 12, verse uh, 37. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word of uh, spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled. So in John chapter 2, the Messiah manifests his glory through the signs, and his disciples believed in him. Well, the opposite is the case in John chapter 12, verse 37. Even though he performed so many signs and thus revealed his glory, the text doesn't exactly say that, but in terms of glory that was manifest, but we know that he manifested his glory through the signs he performed, yet the people did not believe in him. And what's so interesting about that is that is precisely what is described okay, that's over time. In, sure, in Isaiah 52, where it says that the Patrick. Messiah's glory would not be honored among the sons of men. Thank you. Okay, I want to try to be real strict to the timer. Um, sure. <clears throat> James, your three-minute rebuttal. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I I just want to focus upon one element of that, just as a I think a very clear example of what I have seen throughout Mr. Novice's book, and that is the reading out of the text, the meaning that is there. For example, we just went to John chapter eight, and we had Abraham, and Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ. Now let's compare that with John twelve. In John twelve. We have a specific citation of a specific individual. Was there any, any citations of Abraham? No, there was not. We have a specific citation of a known text of Scripture that anyone could find for themselves. We have the exact words used in the Greek Septuagint. Identain doxon autu, found in John 12:41, going directly back to idon ton kurion and tes doxes autu in the Greek Septuagint, Isaiah 6:1. And so you have the very words, the, you have direct citation, and yet the two are being parallel. There is no parallel between them. The question is, who did Isaiah see? Now, I heard it said, well, Isaiah saw the glory of the Messiah. Well, yes, when he's talking about the Messiah's mission, he certainly did. But in giving the words of judgment, where Yahweh himself is bringing judgment upon the people of Israel, where Yahweh himself is causing their hearts to be, to be hard and their ears to be closed, in that context and that citation in John 12:40. That's the direct uh, antecedent to these things Isaiah said. Not a general thing. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke concerning him. Now, we want to talk about the natural meaning of language. 
if you are a Jewish person and you have the Greek text, you have the Septuagint or whatever you would have had at that time in your hands, and you have somebody quoting directly from this text, and then you have them quoting from the end of Isaiah 6.1, and you're talking about someone speaking about Yahweh, and then he makes the application to Jesus, what are you going to come to the conclusion of when you hear something like that? You see, it's allowing John to build a case from the from one one through chapter five through chapter eight and the I am sayings and and now we're in twelve and we're going to see it again in seventeen and then in twenty there is this cumulative case built up by the apostle and simply allowing the language to speak for itself where did Isaiah see the glory of Yahweh anywhere but here in such a way that he spoke about him as John asserted that he did. That's the question we need to be looking at. Okay, thank you. Uh, Patrick, your three-minute rebuttal. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what James White meant when he said there's no comparison, if I understood him correctly, between what John said about Isaiah seeing the glory of the Messiah and what Jesus said about Abraham having seen the day of the Messiah. I looked up the Greek, and it seems to me that the language is also very similar. Um, in John 8:56, as I said, it says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, that's the word Iden, and it was glad. And I think that's this very same term that John uses of Isaiah when he says he saw his glory and spoke of him. I think that text clearly demonstrates, as as I said earlier, that prophet or an Old Testament figure can be spoken of as one who saw the day of the Messiah, okay, and as one who saw the glory of the Messiah, and it not have to mean that he literally saw the, the Messiah in a kind of pre-existent or pre-incarnate state. In other words, I, I, don't, I don't see how where James addressed the, the point that I made about um, a prophet or an Old Testament figure seen in the kind of prophetic, visionary type of sense, which was obviously or clearly the case with Abraham in terms of how he saw the Messiah's day. Um, another question I guess would have for James is he he made the point in his um, <clears throat> initial statement that this is his interpretation is obvious. So I wonder if it's so obvious why why does why do you have several evangelical scholars that basically disagree with the traditional Trinitarian interpretation. If I have time to at least quote one, professor of New Testament studies at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Andreas Kostenberger, he says, the passage cited is Isaiah 53.1. In the original context, reference is made to the servant of the Lord who was rejected by the people but exalted by God. In John, the verse is applied to Jesus the Messiah, who is that promised servant, and to the rejection of his message and signs. Uh, the arm of the Lord by the Jews. In the wake of two Isaiahic quotes in 1238 and 1240, the evangelist concludes that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. In light of the preceding quotation of Isaiah 610, some say, like James White, that the background for the present statement is the call narrative in Isaiah 6. Yet though Al 2, his, probably refers to Jesus, John does not actually say that Isaiah saw Jesus, but that he saw Jesus' glory. Hence, it is not necessary to conclude that the evangelists believe that Isaiah saw the pre-existent Christ, 
or that he saw Jesus in some pre-incarnate fashion. Rather, Isaiah foresaw that God was pleased with a suffering servant who would be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, Isaiah 52.13, yet who was pierced for our transgressions and bore the sins of many. Hence, Isaiah knew that God's glory would be revealed through a suffering Messiah, something deemed impossible by the crowds. Like Abraham, Isaiah saw Jesus' day. Okay, Patrick, you have three minutes to cross-examine James. Okay, um, my first question for James White would be, why do you think, uh, given that, <clears throat> in your opinion, your interpretation of the text is so obvious, why do you think that um, prominent Trinitarian Bible scholars disagree with you? And I could cite a few other, but I don't think it's necessary. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I'd like to correct you inserted my name into that citation. Of course, it's not there. Uh, he was not making specific reference to me. Uh, but uh, I think that a lot of interpreters uh, are very hesitant to make very high statements concerning Christology in uh, our modern context. And um, but I'm they're not here. They're not they're not debating. So I'm not going to I'm not going to answer for them. Uh, I have not said that it's so obvious that someone can't miss it. I do believe that it is very clear when we allow the language to speak for itself. There's a difference between obvious and clear. Okay. Now, how do you interpret Jesus statement in reference to Abraham where he said that Abraham saw his day? Did Abraham see the Messiah in a preexistent state? Is that how you interpret that particular statement? Uh, no. Uh, in fact, the, what, you, you completely misunderstood my rebuttal. Uh, what I was pointing out is that John chapter 8 has no quotations from Abraham. There is no scripture cited. There is nothing said about, well, Abraham was doing this, or Abraham saw this and then he spoke about God, or any of the things that you have in John chapter 12. So I, don't, I, I, I do not even see it as being parallel. That's a parallel that you're creating that is not a part of the inspired text. And so I do believe that Abraham saw the day of the coming of the Messiah in many ways, such as in the resurrection of Isaac and uh, his hope of the resurrection of Isaac, obviously, and the offering of his son upon the mount, and, and numerous other things, and the promises of the gospel. But I see no parallel to quoting uh, words from an ancient prophet uh, that you have in Isaiah uh, chapter 6 and John chapter 12. There's, there just isn't a parallel between the two. Okay. Now, do you think it's possible that John could have had in mind Isaiah 52.13, where he specifically speaks about the Messiah, and he specifically portrays the Messiah as having glory and as glorified exceedingly. Do you think it's, there's any connection to be made there? Well, he quotes from Isaiah 53. He, uh, he quotes from the, the Suffering Servant song is what we should uh, title it. Uh, there's sure. no question that he wants to have all of that brought into mind. But when he says, Tauta Ipan Isaiah, the question is, what is that? And the only answer that you can come up with, if you're going to allow for language to have its meaning in the sense of he saw his glory, is what is found in Isaiah 6.1, which is the immediate antecedent in John chapter 12, verse 40. Actually, that's verse 10, but obviously it's a temple vision. Okay. Okay, that's that's three minutes. Um, So, James, if you're ready, I'll start your three-minute timer to cross-examine Patrick. Yes. Uh, Mr. Novice, who did Isaiah see in Isaiah 6? Isaiah saw Jehovah God, or the Lord, according to the Septuagint, high and lifted up. And what verb does the Greek Septuagint use to describe his seeing of Yahweh high and lifted up? Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but at least he uses, like you said, the word idon. Okay. And uh, where else 
in the gospel, I'm sorry, in the book of Isaiah, do you have that verb appearing? Either that or you can use hara'o as well. Obviously, that's the aorist form. Um, where do you have that ever appearing where Isaiah sees the glory of Yahweh and he speaks about Yahweh? Where, where else does that appear in, uh, in Isaiah? Uh, to my knowledge, it doesn't, but I haven't researched that point. You haven't researched that point. Okay. Um, if it did not appear anywhere else in Isaiah, would that not impact the truthfulness of John's statement in verse 41? I don't understand what you mean. If, if you're, if, and I'm not exactly certain what your position is, but is it your position that it is invalid to see verse 41 as a statement that Isaiah saw Yahweh, but, Je- but John is insisting that Isaiah saw Jesus. Is that invalid? Um, I do think it's invalid because John doesn't say that he saw Yahweh, but he says that he saw the glory of the Messiah. Uh, the word Altu in John 12, his glory. Right. Uh, the Messiah's glory. In, in, the, in the Septuagint, Altu at the end of verse 1 of Isaiah 6 is about whom again? About the Lord, Jehovah. Okay, and so you are assuming that the Altu changes in John twelve forty one from Yahweh to the Messiah. What's your basis for that? No, I'm not assuming that. I'm assu- I'm just simply agreeing with John that he saw the glory of him. He's speaking of the Messiah, and in Isaiah chapter six, uh, Isaiah is not speaking about the Messiah, but he's speaking about Jehovah God. Yeah, he's speaking about Jehovah God. So if the parallel language to the Septuagint is purposeful on John's part. How does that not mean that Isaiah saw Yahweh's glory, but John is saying he saw Jesus' glory, hence the identification? Well, because that question assumes that, that that language was purposeful on John's part for the purpose of identifying Jesus as Jehovah God. So, so I agree with that. The, oh, so the language, the, the, the exact parallel of verb and the noun followed by the possessive, that is all fortuitous. It wasn't purposeful on John's part. I don't believe it was purposeful for the purpose of, of John identifying Jesus as God in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6. No. That's your okay. interpretation of the text. Okay, guys, that's uh, time. Patrick, you have one minute to present your closing statement before we move on to the next text. Okay, thank you. Um, just I wanted to make the, the point clear in terms of how I'm understanding the text, because uh, I think James said that he, wasn't, he still wasn't sure uh, how I'm taking the text. When John said that Isaiah said these things, the things in Isaiah 53.1 and Isaiah 6.10, because he saw his glory, that is the glory of the Messiah, and spoke of him, I believe, or what I'm arguing is that Isaiah saw the glory of the Messiah in the sense that he prophetically saw the Messiah. In other words, he envisioned, based upon God's revolution, uh, revelation to him, the, what the glory of the Messiah would be like. And in fact, that's um, what you see taking place in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. You can very easily and very naturally uh, conclude that Isaiah saw the glory depicted there in a very specific way. My servant shall be glorified exceedingly. His glory would not be honored among the sons of men. That's exactly what's taking place in the... Okay, that's in the time. Unbel- Go ahead. Okay. James, your one-minute closing. 
Oh, I think we just saw uh, very clearly uh, exactly what I had predicted we would see, and that is we have such a clear text in the statement, Isaiah saw his glory. And, well, we have to change that. It, yes, in the original of Isaiah 6, and, and what the people who read John, if they had the Septuagint, they would have understood that he was talking about Yahweh. And, yeah, he's making application to Jesus, but... Well, it, it, you can't make that, that connection. So it, it has to be something about the general glory of the Messiah. And, and we need to go over to John chapter 8. And this is where, again, I think we see the danger of having a presupposition that overrides allowing the text to speak for itself. Isaiah said he saw the glory of Yahweh. John said he saw the glory of Jesus. That tells you who G- John thinks Jesus truly is, and we should follow his, uh, his lead. Okay, thank you. We're going to move on now to 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6, and we're going to switch up the order. So, Patrick, you'll begin, and I'll start your seven-minute timer now. Okay, thank you, Chris. Let me just flip through my notes to get the text in front of me. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, 5 through 6 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, um, it makes me go back to the, the, the statement that I originally made in my opening <clears throat> Um, introduction about creeds that you find in the Bible, that is to say, formal statements of faith, clear announcements about what we as Christians uh, are supposed to believe about God and his identity, about the identity of Jesus, so on and so forth. So this is a, a classic text that I, I, you might fairly describe as a, as a genuine Christian creed. Now, <clears throat> I need to make a few points about the language here, okay? First of all, notice that Paul's making a specific point to identify who he believed the one God uh, was in his uh, view as a Christian. Okay, he says there is one God, the Father. Okay, and that's exactly what I'm arguing tonight as a Christian. I, with Paul, I just like Paul, believe that there's one God, the Father. Now, <clears throat> Trinitarians believe something, or they, they're certainly going to affirm the truthfulness of that statement, but they're going to go beyond that in the sense that it doesn't stop there for Trinitarians. For the Trinitarian, there's one God, but it's not just the Father. They would go on to describe others who, in their view, are equally the one God. So the first point I have to point out to, to make is that that's not Paul doesn't say anything like that. He simply identifies the one God as the Father. And then he goes on to speak about the one Lord Jesus through whom all things are and through whom we exist. Now, so the second point I'd need to make is that Paul speaks about the one God as the Father, and then he goes on to speak about Jesus as the one Lord. The first point, which is really self-evident, is that this one Lord Jesus is portrayed by Paul as a completely distinct figure from the one God. In other words, Paul doesn't say, uh, there's one God, the Father, and Jesus. He says there's one God, the Father, and then he says, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. So the point is, according to Paul, the one God is the Father. 
But he goes on to speak of another, someone other than the one God, that is, the one Lord Jesus. Okay. Now, in Dr. White's book on the Trinity, he quotes B.B. Uh, B. Warfield, a 19th century theologian. He says, <clears throat> obviously, this one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ are embraced together in the one God who alone is. Now, the problem with that statement is that it just has nothing to do with what the text actually says. Paul does not combine the Father and the Son under the category or the identity of the one God. All you have to do is literally just read the text. There's one God, the Father. And again, when he goes on to speak about the one Lord Jesus Christ, the one Lord Jesus Christ is distinct from the one God. In other words, he's not the one God, or at least he's not identified as the one God in that particular text. Now, Trinitarians have traditionally argued, well, in this case, Jesus is called the one Lord. Well, Lord is a title conveying the idea of deity. In other words, this is just another way of saying that Jesus is himself the almighty God. Okay, And James White actually argues the same thing in his book. He says that the Lord in this case is the title of deity. Now, the reason why that I don't find that convincing is because according to the Bible, according to um, several texts, in fact, the lordship that Jesus possesses is, in fact, a lordship that was given to him by the one God, by his father. And this is not merely an inference on my part, but it's something that the scriptures specifically tell us. In fact, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2 tells us that, or he tells the, the people of Israel, the people who he was preaching to in that instance, let the house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. So the point that I'm making is that's the sense in which, according to the Bible, Jesus is to be understood as Lord. In other words, he's Lord because God has made him to be Lord. And again, not according to me, but according to the scriptures. Um, <clears throat> James White has also tried to counter this, the interpretation of this text by saying, uh, well, if, if one God, the Father, is meant to be taken exclusively, then does it not follow that one Lord Jesus Christ excludes the Father from a re the realm of lordship? The answer is no. The Father is, in fact, the sovereign Lord in the Hebrew scriptures. He's identified as Adonai, which basically means supreme or sovereign Lord. But the Father is, in fact, not the one Lord who was made to be such by a figure who is greater than himself, as Jesus is so clearly spoken of in the Bible. So the Father is not the one Lord in this particular sense that Paul means to describe the, Jesus as the one Lord. And neither Jesus is the one God. So the point is that it's, it's not a good argument to say, well, if, if you're going to exclude Jesus from the category of the one God, then you have to exclude the Father from the category of lordship because we don't have to. We do have to exclude the Father from being Lord in that specific sense. Okay? And that would be a question I'd have to ask James White. Is, is the Father Lord in the sense that he was made Lord by someone who was greater than himself? I would think that James White would have to answer no to that question. Secondly, another reason why we know that the, the reference to Jesus as Lord in this instance is not, does not convey the idea of deity is because elsewhere in the Bible, the Father is described as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? If you're Almighty God, you don't ha you, it's impossible for you to have one who is God to you or God above you. So, Clearly, the lordship that Jesus has is that which was conferred upon him by his father, by the one God. 
Now, and this, there's a lot of parallels to this text. For example, we can look at First Corinthians, excuse me, First Timothy 2:5, where Paul uses very similar language. He says, "There is one God and one mediator." Okay, between that's time. Sure. Okay, uh, James, your seven-minute opening. There, we finally got it unmuted. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's dive into this text. Um, Shema Yisrael Yahweh Eloheinu Yahweh Echad. This is the Shema, the statement of the ancient people of Israel of their belief in one God, Yahweh. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, that is Akue Israel Kurias Hatheas Hemon Kurias Heis Estin. And notice the words that are used in the daily prayer of the Jewish people in the Shema in Greek. Kurias Hatheas Hemon Kurias Heis One is. Now, as many scholars have recognized, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and I would agree this is as close as, one, as close as we're going to get to one of those creedal statements, but once again, its true significance and real meaning has been read out of the text by the Unitarian who has an overriding desire to present Jesus as a creature, and therefore this higher revelation has to be uh, dismissed. And so what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 is Paul's statement, and notice what he uses. He says, Al-Hemin Heis Theos. There's the, there's the same Heis one. Then you have Theos, just as in the Shema. Ha-Pater. Then you have the description, from whom are all things, and we for him. And then we have a second phrase. Paul has not exhausted his definition for the Christians of the one true God by saying, Heis Theos. He should have stopped right there because there is a chasm, an infinite chasm that separates Heis Theos, Hapater, the one God, the Father, from any creature, no matter how exalted he might be. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he repeats heis, and he says, kai heis kurios, same words as the Shema, Jesus Christos, through whom are all things, and we through him. So you have very clearly being presented to us, and this is the background that I, if and I might have missed it, it's possible, it's a long book, but I didn't see where Mr. Novice touched any of this, or even recognized the Shema as the background. Of this text, it was a fairly short section that he had toward the beginning of his book on this. It wasn't a major discussion. So, but the point is that here you have this this creedal statement. We agree, and what does it represent? This has led many scholars to recognize that the idea of the old style liberals uh, that this this development of Christology must take hundreds of years. No, this is First Corinthians. This is early. This is primitive. And yet in the most primitive elements of Christian worship, you have Jesus being described in a way that cannot be used of a created being. You will not have an angel. You will not have anything placed into the Shema as definitional of the one God of Israel by someone like the Apostle Paul if, in point of fact, the one you're trying to point people to is but an angel or something else. It's not going to happen. And notice also the descriptions. From who is Tapanta? That's going to be coming up in, in Colossians chapter 1 when we get there. From whom is Tapanta? And we, for him, very same language is going to be used of Jesus in Colossians 1 as far as the ice auton. 
and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom the Tapanta comes. If all things come through you, you are not a creation. You are the creator. Even if you are the means of creation, then if, again, this is the whole problem that Jehovah's Witnesses have come up with, well, you know, Michael the Archangel, they had to stick the word other into Colossians chapter 1, because clearly it is the creator who is being described in those words. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it does present to us this tremendous presentation. And so what Mr. Novice just said was, well, but he was made Lord. So one who is a creature who was made kurios, the original background context is of Yahweh. So we've changed the meaning again of the background. We can't go back to the Old Testament and draw that in. We have to come up with a new meaning for kurios now. And so we ignore the Shema and we say, well, he was made both Lord and Christ. Well, that's in regards to the Messiah and the people of Israel. Certainly there's nothing here about Jesus being made in that way. Where is, where is it said that Jesus is created or made or that his lordship, the lordship that he has in being confessed along with the one true God, the Father, as the creator of all things is something that was not his for eternity. That's what we're going to see when, again, who was the one we just saw that Isaiah saw sitting upon the throne who's being worshipped by angels? Well, it's the same one who becomes flesh. And it was also said, well, you know, if you're almighty God, you can't have a God. That's exactly what my Muslim friends say to me all the time. If you've got a God, if you're God, then you can't have a God. That's a simple assumption of the denial of the incarnation. That's a simple assumption that, well, now, okay, we're going to assume Unitarianism. We're going to, we're going to, every, we're going to read every text as a Unitarian text. And when we encounter stuff that challenges that, well, we just dismiss that and say, well, you can't have a God who is, who is, uh, uh, has a God above him. I mean, there's, there's no way the second person in Trinity could, well, wait a minute, that would be making himself of no reputation. That's Philippians chapter two. That's exactly what he did. He became, he took on human flesh and as such he was the perfect man and as such he would worship and that's exactly what he did. So these are not valid arguments against the scriptural revelation. Again, when we look at what a monotheistic Jew, knowing the Shema in, in Hebrew and in Greek, they would have heard exactly what Paul was saying. And that means these early Christians in their early creedal statements were using the Shema and they were filling it out in light of the divine revelation of the coming of Jesus Christ in human flesh. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him. That was not a statement that he is a lesser being, a creature. That was a recognition on their part of the differing roles they took. We are through him. We are in in him, yes, but he is still confessed with the words that they use to worship their one true God. And that is why Christians down through the ages continue to worship him in that way. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Patrick, if you're ready, I'll start your three-minute timer for your rebuttal. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, I don't have any problem whatsoever um, <clears throat> with the, the idea or the suggestion that Paul has uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 in mind as a background for this text. In fact, in uh, verse 5, he says there is no God but one. So that's similar to the language of Deuteronomy. But the point that I'm making is that Paul, in this instance, he's making a, a contrast between what the larger world around him um, basically believed in terms of, look, there's many gods and many lords. And then he makes a point about what what the case is for Christians. Well, for Christians, we only have 
one from each category. In other words, the world has many gods, many lords, but for us there's only one God. And Paul identifies the one God as the Father, out of whom are all things and for whom we exist. Um, and I can only re- reiterate the point that I made about um, when Paul describes Jesus as the one Lord, okay, he's no longer talking about the one God. Okay, That would be a point that is, again, simply self-evident. It's not even a, a dis- debatable point. It's just a, something that's self-evident in the text. There's one God, the Father, out of whom are all things and for whom we exist. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is Lord um, because God has appointed him to that status. Now, I agree that the text doesn't specifically say that he was made Lord, but the Bible tells us that that's how he became Lord, because God made him. So I'm not sure what Dr. White means. To, it almost sounds like he's denying that that's how Jesus came to be Lord when that's what the Bible specifically tells us. And I don't see anywhere in the text that says that Jesus is has eternally been such, but I do see verses in the Bible that inform us and um, illuminate our understanding of what sense Jesus is Lord. According to the Bible, Jesus was exalted by God. He was made to be Lord. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth. So that's the sense in which the Bible itself tells us that Jesus is Lord. And again, according to Paul elsewhere, the Father is the God of our Lord. So my question would also be to James, in that instance where the Father is described as the God of our Lord, does Lord in that case mean Almighty God? Is that how Dr. White is interpreting verses like that? So according to Christians, according to Paul, there is one God. The Father is the one God. Jesus is our one Lord, according to the scriptures, because the one God, the Father, exalted him to that status, bestowed upon him authority, and uh, made him to be Lord as uh, the Apostle Peter explicitly told us so it's it's certainly uh true that this is a formal creedal statement if you want to call it that but it specifically tells us who the one god is okay james your three minute rebuttal well what we just heard was i assume unitarianism and i'm not going to deal with that schma stuff uh what we heard was just repetitions of the same statements that, no, we have to read the Bible in a Unitarian way rather than dealing with the the problem here, and that is that reading it in a Unitarian way means that you have the Apostle Paul and you have the early Christians taking the Shema, which was about Yahweh God, and applying it to the Father and to the Son as a part of their worship and saying, well, but it's, you know, it's a relative worship. It's, you know, it, he's not really Yahweh by nature. He, he's something else. How can someone who was raised as Paul was raised and every morning got up and said, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, now take this and join together with the Christian community and identify that one Yahweh as Father and Jesus Christ. And once again, well, are you, he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he better be. Jesus wasn't an atheist. We believe it's Yahweh who became flesh. And since it was Yahweh who became flesh, Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. That does not change the importance of the term Yahweh, the weight of, of Kodias, the weight of it and what it means and the fact that it results in his being worshipped and prayed to, not in just some relative sense. I don't worship lesser lords than Jesus Christ. That is just not a part of Christian monotheism. And so 
there wasn't really an argument there. What we need to ask in the cross-examination period now is real simple. Aside from assuming Unitarianism, how could the Apostle Paul take the Shema and represent the early Christian community and say what he said? To us, there is but one, he should have, if the Unitarians are right, what we should have is, but to us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we in him. Period. End of discussion, because he's talking about fighting against idolatry. But he doesn't do that. For us, there is one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Is Jesus a creation? Then how did he create himself? That's one of the questions we'd have to ask. And we through him. This is the Christian confession. It's a confession that we continue to make to this day. And I am very thankful that it has been preserved for us by our Lord. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, James. You now have three minutes to cross-examine Patrick. Okay. And by the way, Chris, we, we can, we can actually breathe between each section. <laughs> I'm not under that much time pressure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just, All right. Just, you just, you just sound like you, like, like, uh, you're expecting me to run out at the very last second. If, if we, you know, it's okay to breathe. It's all right. It's okay. all right. Okay. I'll, I'll be sure to start right. your, restart your timer then. Okay, I just wanted to let you know we're we're okay. Thanks, James. All right, here we go. <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Navis, um, the Shema in Deuteronomy six four. Would you confess that that is the monotheistic statement of the Jewish people? Yes. Uh, do you see, or do you uh, accept that Paul is? utilizing the very language of the Shema in 1 Corinthians 8, 6? Um, I don't agree that it's identical language because it's, it's, doesn't, he doesn't use the exact same language. Uh, does he use the word heis? Is, is the word heis in the Septuagint of the Shema? Absolutely. Theos. Ha theos, hemon, kurios, ice estin. Okay, so kurios, theos, heis, all of which are in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, are also in the Septuagint of the Shema, correct? Um, yeah, but the construction is different. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, he says the Lord, you know, God is one. God is one. Right. Yeah, I, but, no one, no one's, no one said other than that. But the language, those terms, heis, theos, and kurios, are all used in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 in the Septuagint, correct? Yes, yes, they are. Okay. You say this is a creed, correct? Yes. So does it represent the worship of the early, what the early believers in Corinth would have agreed with, with the Apostle Paul as to their God? Absolutely. Okay. Um, if it is your position that Kurios, Jesus Christos, is a creature, then could you please explain how Ta Panta is de who is through him by means of him um yeah well i'm not arguing that that text proves or says that jesus is a creature um but i agree with with what the text says that all things came out of god and that all things come through jesus christ so the text presents god as the source and jesus as the one through whom these things came into existence okay uh Tapanta, what does that mean? It means all things. If Jesus is a thing, how could he have created himself? Well, I wouldn't describe Jesus as a thing. 
He's not part of the top Honda. Not in that text, no. So he is eternal? I don't believe that. Well, I, I know for a fact that the text doesn't say anything about him being eternal, and I'm not aware of any text in the Bible that says that he's eternal in the sense that he never had a beginning to existence. I'm, I'm out of time, but I'd love to pursue that. Okay, there's that breath you were talking about. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Patrick, if you're ready, uh, I'll go ahead and I'll start your three-minute timer uh, when you begin speaking. Okay, um, who does uh, Paul identify the one God as in that text? The Father. Okay, and does Paul identify Jesus as that one God? No, uh, Paul always different, almost always differentiates between the Father and the Son in regards to using Theos and Kurios. Okay, but does not does Paul not distinguish between the one God and the one Lord? In other words, does he not present them as two distinct figures in this text? He, well, the, since the doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes them, that's why we do too. Of course, the, we we are well aware of the difference between the Father and the Son. Okay, but do you believe that Jesus is a distinct figure from the one God? Not he is not a creature and he's not a creation. No, he's a he's a as as you had correctly quoted the definition of the Trinity in your book, there are three co equal and co eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and uh, the Son is not the Father. Okay. Now now I know we're not really discussing the Trinity, but I, I do I would like to ask Oh we are you know, <laughs> Okay, okay, we are. Well according to your belief, you know, the one God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why, why, in your opinion, did Paul not simply say that at that point? Why didn't he say there's one God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Because the Trinity is a revelation of what God has done in time. The, the, the primary revelation of the Trinity what? is the incarnation of the Son, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so, as I pointed out in the book, and as uh, you quoted Warfield correctly stating, uh, the, the New Testament is simply the record of the religion of the Trinity. And so since it is revealed over time in the way that God has acted, it's not meant to be a, a systematic theology. It's not meant to be a rationalistic book on theology. It is how God has revealed himself to us. And when we allow all of it to speak, it tells us very clearly who God is. Okay, I would be surprised now- if it was any other way. Why didn't if Paul want if Paul's purpose was to tell us clearly who God is, why didn't he just say there's you know the one God is the Father, Son, and Spirit? He could have done so. It wasn't really he had the language to to use. If if we have ears to hear, he did tell us very clearly. He just took the Shema and told us who the who our who the Lord our God is. And to anyone who who saw that heard that echo of the Old Testament and knew what it was to say the Shema, they know. Exactly who, what, what Paul's saying. There is one Lord Jesus Christ. They, there is no way that a Jewish, a monotheistic Jew saying those words could ever have the idea, whatever your idea of Jesus is, in mind. It's not possible. Couldn't have happened. Okay. Is the Lord God of the Shema a distinct figure from the one God? Lord God of the Shema? That's Yahweh. Yahweh Elohim. Right. Is, is the God of the Shema, can he be spoken of as a distinct figure from the one God? I, there is only one true God, Yahweh, so no, I, I'm not sure what you're asking. Okay, that's, that's time. Uh, James, if you're ready to go, I'll start your one minute timer, uh, when you begin speaking. 
I think it's very clear, uh, once again, uh, the, the text has spoken to us. There is no way that the Apostle Paul could take that precious text of the Shema and reword it in this way, include Jesus as the Kudios, as the Yahweh of the Old Testament, and say all things created through, uh, all things are through him and we through him without identifying him as true deity. Um, while Mr. Novice's position may not be the specific subject, obviously we have to bring the question in as I did in my opening statement. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus a creature? Then he's part of the Tapanta. So how can all things be through him? This is, this directly impacts our ability to interpret these texts to answer the question, who it is we're talking about here in each one of these texts, it has to be put on the table. It really does. Okay, thank you. Patrick, your one-minute closing. Okay, thank you. Um, again, Paul, in this instance, makes a very deliberate uh, uh, point to uh, tell us who the one God is. For Paul, the one God is the Father. I would say the same thing. Paul also tells us that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. I would say the same thing. James White earlier made a point about, well, if this was a, you know, if Paul was a Unitarian or if, uh, you know, the Bible taught a quote Unitarian faith, that is a non-Trinitarian faith, Paul would have said something like, there is one God, the Father, period, and that would have been the end of the discussion. Well, that's not true because I, as a Christian, I don't really use the word Unitarian to describe my faith, but I certainly know what James White means by that. But according to the faith that I have in the Bible, I certainly agree and affirm and would defend that Jesus is our one Lord. But I would understand him as Lord in the sense that the Bible explicitly tells me. There's not, there is no mystery there. In other words, there's, there's, it's not an unresolved question. The Bible explicitly tells us Jesus is Lord because God made him Lord. Jesus has the status that he has because God exalted him to that position. Okay. That's, that's time. Thank you. Okay, that was part one of the debate between Patrick Novice and James White on the deity of Christ. Uh, listen to episode 68, the next episode in the feed, for part two, which includes the rest of the texts and final closing arguments.